Welcome to A Penny for Your Thoughts, a podcast brought to you by Sean Bloomgren and Andrew Penny from Central Iowa. On our show, we discuss all things agronomy, high-yield management, and give you real-time updates on what we're seeing and hearing in the field. We will also gain insight from industry professionals as we bring you relevant and timely information on current agronomic practices. Thank you for joining us. Uh, welcome back to uh, A Penny for Your Thoughts. Uh, this is uh, part two of our discussion with uh, virologist Dr. Steve Whittem from Iowa State. Uh, in, in the second part, we're going to discuss uh, management of plant viruses and and then also current uses in, in real world implications of RNA interference. And so um, I, I figure we would start um, what, you know, what is, what is your lab working on right now, Steve? And is there any relationship or, you know, are, are you looking at uh, any anything with RNA interference? Um, we don't really study the mechanism of RNA interference, but we we use it for we use it a lot. Um, so we we do a um, we've developed and applied technology called virus induced gene silencing um, in in our lab. Uh, it's basically a lab tool that allows you to rapidly silence a gene to test its function in whatever you're interested in. It could be, you know, in my lab, we it's function in resistance against a pathogen or something, but other other people could use virus-induced gene silencing for for other other uses. How do viruses, um, how do these viruses overwinter? So um, maize dwarf virus in corn, um, alfalfa mosaic, uh, bean pod model, how, how do those survive overwinter? That's a good question. Uh, probably each one of those does something different to survive over okay. over winter. Um, uh, some of them are seed. Some of them could be or are seed transmitted. So that's one one way to survive. Although I think mo- most corn hybrids are not going to be. Um, well, either not very susceptible to maize dwarf, for example, and I think most modern hybrids you wouldn't see seed transmission of maize dwarf in them in them either um but they are you know a, a lot could have to do with the movement of their insect vectors from from a place where the virus could overwinter in living corn or another host that that virus could survive in um uh that's a good question because i often wondered that and i guess i still do because you know obviously we have the discussion of vectors and you know obviously there's not a whole lot of insects that survive the winters within right. iowa or illinois and so you, you picture it's either got, it's got to be some living host, right? Whether it's a, another grass or, or broadleaf species or or an insect vector, whether, right. whether they're over overwintering. So right. yeah, so like, I've often wondered that as well. Yeah, so like bean pod model virus, for example, um, it is possible for the beetles to over overwinter um, if if conditions are are right. And um, there's been a few studies show that. You know those overwintering beetles could harbor a virus that they acquired late, late in the previous previous season. Uh, but also, uh, bean pod model virus can survive. It you know its host range allows it to infect plants that might be perennial uh, in in the landscape. So it will also be possible for that virus to be acquired from a plant in the landscape and then move it into into soybean the next next spring or summer. Yeah. So 
if a virus needs the vectors, tillage theoretically would have very little impact on virus survival, right? And and row crop management. Uh, pro- probably, that's correct, yeah. yeah. So uh, thinking about that too, you know, thinking about the insects and the vector, um, do is is that something that uh, is passed down from, say you have two, either one parent or both parents that are carrying a virus, is, mm-hmm. is that virus packed, passed down through its offspring? Uh, for most viruses, no. Uh, there are some viruses where that's that's true, but uh, um, like the viruses you guys mentioned, the maize dwarf, bean pod model, soybean mosaic, alfalfa mosaic, um, those are those are what are called non persistently transmitted viruses, and in in those cases, uh, the um, the uh, insect can't pass it on to its its progeny, uh, but there are there are some viruses. Um, uh, like certain families of viruses that can actually replicate in the insect as well as in the plant. Hmm. Uh, and in those cases, they can pass the uh, virus on to the, to the next generation. So that, so then in that case, the, if, if they replicate within the insect, that insect would be, would be passing down a, a higher viral load of virus particles to the plant or does that, is that relatively constant? Um, if they multiply I, yeah, I don't the know insect. No, well, I think the progeny would probably have the same levels of virus that the parent parent had. Um, gotcha. Yeah. So thinking about that too is can can any insect species vector any virus, or are there just specific insects that can only vector specific viruses? Yeah, typically there's a specific relationship between a virus and a given. Uh, Type of let's say type of insect for now is is that but almost that can, like a host like thinking about fungi is that almost like a a host species versus non-host like it's either compatible or non-compatible with you know virus yeah, I guess, yeah you could sort of think of it like that like um, uh, let's take maize dwarf mosaic virus for for example since you mentioned that one uh, that's an aphid transmitted virus which means that it's not going to be transmitted by beetles or you know, whatever, white flies, it's it's only going to be transmitted by aphids. And, um, you know, some, some podiviruses like maize dwarf mosaic virus can be transmitted by several different species of aphid, uh, but but they are limited to being transmitted by aphids. Well, uh, that, that gets me thinking. I'm, I'm curious, what, what would, what causes that? Why, why you know, I would think if, if a plant has a virus, you could, if any li- living organism yeah. What, what what causes that specificity specificity within within an insect? I think you could think about it like um, like receptors or lock and key um, oh, kinds you. of analogies. Like, um, you know, uh, an aphid feeds on a corn plant infected with maize dwarf, for example. And if if it uh, if the maize dwarf has the right aphid species that's feeding, uh, it can stick to its mouth. It's it's mouth part, right? And it can stay there. It won't just pass through the the aphid. And so if that aphid moves to another plant, because the virus is stuck there, okay, it gets carried to the next plant. And then when the aphid starts to feed, it it induces it introduces saliva, and that saliva can remove the the virus off of the off okay. of the mouth part. So like a stink so bug those, feeding those on it. Those kinds of lock and key. Yeah. So like if a stink bug were to feed on a corn plant. Even though it would get the virus particles in its mouth, it would just pass through the insect. It wouldn't stick. Yeah. To, 
Okay. Hmm. Interesting. Hmm. So, <laughs> so what? And so, what are some other vectors that you know? As we think management here, and and this would probably go above and beyond corn and soybeans. And I remember learning about. I don't, I don't, if I remember right, there's some citrus virus diseases where you do proper. You know, you mentioned propagation. What are some other vectors that that we might encounter? You know, whether it's row crop, vegetable crop, citrus citrus trees that that might impact viral spread. Other vectors in terms of yeah, insects? Uh, no, just any any kind of vector, whether it's human, you know, stuff that. Oh, humans made... are great vectors. Yeah, that's yeah, uh, yeah. Like with the tree industry, um, it's really important to have uh, virus-free stock that that they use to make cuttings from that are then going to be grafted onto rootstocks in orchards, you know, and put out in in orchards. So those those mother trees or whatever they call them, uh, it's really important that those are kept virus-free um, because, uh, yeah, we can, we can move viruses all over the world if we don't, don't keep, don't keep our stock material virus-free. So it's very, very important in um, tree crop industries uh, and in horticulture industry too, right? Um, there's lots of, Examples of using cuttings and vegetative propagation and things like that. Um, yeah. Different plants that produce bulbs, and you want to make sure that those you know those plants that produce the bulbs didn't have a virus in them. So we could go on and on about you know, <laughs> right. different ways that the virus could, could be transmitted. So if if we're looking at at a if we're looking at symptomology in a field. What would tell you that you might be dealing with a plant virus? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, sometimes it's a bit difficult to distinguish like a viral infection from uh, some kind of abiotic stress. Because uh, frequently, you know, you, you should see some, some distinct patterns of yellowing. Uh, maybe we call them like mosaics or, or modeling that we might see. Um, the leaves can kind of become uh, de deformed somewhat. Uh, the plants might be stunted in, in growth. Um, uh, but, I mean, it just it depends. Uh, you know, some viruses cause uh, some kinds of necrosis that can track along the veins and things like that. Um, so it really, it really depends. But, uh, you know, you might, you might look for kinds of distinct patterns stunted growth and then and then not being able to find like a bacteria or a fungal uh infection associated with that plant or or nematode or whatever um so i think you know if if you see a weird looking plant and you can eliminate fungus and bacteria yeah. and nematodes then that might suggest that okay this might be a, a virus so if, if we suspect um you know say say we have some symptomology in a field we think it's a virus we have in, an insect species identified with something that can harbor and vector a virus. Is there anything we can do to stop the viral, the, the infection process? And, and then also once we're infected here, actually, maybe I'll just let you answer that first. Is there anything we can do to stop the, the infection process? You can try to, um, you could try to uh, use, and it's like if it's an insect transmitted virus, you could try to use insecticides to, to uh, reduce the the uh, insect population, yep. Uh, but for certain kinds of viruses, it's been shown that um, you know controlling the insect, trying to control the insect, is oftentimes futile. Uh, 
Really? Uh, yeah. How, how would yeah, it spread if, if you if you're killing the insect? How would it spread? What, what's the <laughs> well? Uh, take take the example of a uh, so an aphid transmitted virus, for example. Uh, and 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 like I said, in many cases, you can have different species of aphid that can carry that that virus. And then aphids have you know they have distinct behavior where if they're coming from you know if they're coming from afar and they're looking for a good you know, host to, to feed on, they might land on a plant and then they'll just give a little probe and, and, uh, get a taste of that plant. And if they don't like it, then they'll move on to another, another plant. So they may not be around long enough for the insecticide that's been sprayed to, uh, uh to kill that aphid. Right. Yeah. Um, and so if it was coming from say a plant that was infected by, you know, uh, a virus, that can move that virus to that plant that it tastes, uh, it leaves the virus behind and then it goes yeah. to, to, to find a, a host it would rather, it would rather feed on. So, so for some aphid transmitted viruses, um, you know, you could try to spray insecticides, but, but because of this aphid, the way aphids migrate and, and look for, look for hosts, it's not always, it's not always a very, um, useful, uh, reliable strategy. Them dang picky aphids. If only they weren't so picky, huh? Yeah. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, do we have genetic resistance to viruses in corn and soybeans um, similar to the genetic resistance we have for fungal diseases? Yes, there is genetic resistance to, to viruses. Um, and some of the genes that control uh, resistance to viruses are very similar to the types of genes that control resistance to other types of pathogens like fungi and and back bacteria. Hmm. Interesting. Well, here here we're gonna we're gonna switch the the management of of plant viruses. We're gonna transition into uh, RNA interference and and you know current uses and, and real world implications. And and I found this. I, I thought I would give this uh, analogy of. Uh, I, I found this, you know, as I was prepping for this, because I thought this was fascinating, and it does a really good job of describing and kind of giving a real-world train of thought to how RNA works. And so this this actually, you know, we actually use this uh, RNA a, a lot in medical, right? The, the medical field mm -hmm. uses this technology a lot. And so this analogy actually comes from uh, the University of Massachusetts uh, Chan Medical School, and and I thought this was this was pretty fascinating. So it, it basically sh you know talks about and, and you mentioned the the petunias, you know two decades two decades ago Andrew Fire and, and uh, RTI's Craig Mello discovered uh, how to use RNA uh, to find and regulate specific genes, and so it, it's known that RNA interference and this this is what earned them the Nobel Prize in two thousand six, right? And so that that's pretty yeah. cool. But you know, basically, some people they, thought I should have been plant scientists. That should have been. <laughs> that's, that's another debate. So, so they they discovered that that cells can you know cells have a search engine, and and that they could harness it to carry out their own searches. And so, um, in in other words, this is what puts it in perspective. In other words, RNAi acts like the cell's own personal Google search for genetic data. And so, think of it of a, as as a library filled with billions of books. This library represents just one person's DNA. Just one page in one book in that library contains the genetic defects causing disease. So say you want to find and play uh, that, you know, play, find that play that has a written line to be or to be or not to be, you know, that, that famous line. Um, but, but you don't have any further information. So say you want to find that specific line. 
Well, RNA has a guide or search engine capability that enables you to find Hamlet by searching for that one phrase in those billions of books. And so I think yeah. that does a really good job of telling, you know, just just anybody and everybody listening how specific RNA technology can be in, in terms of all the different proteins, enzymes, genes, proteins that we can impact using this technology. So I thought that was I thought that was pretty cool. So Yeah, so nice, nice analogy. <laughs> so so with that analogy, I guess, um, Steve, can you tell us some current uses that you've seen um, and followed over the years using this type of technology? The, the ones I've mainly followed are related to virus control. Okay. Um, and there's one that's particularly famous, uh, which um, is the use of RNAi in papaya in Hawaii. Um, so Hawaiian papaya producers were faced with a, um, uh, a, a virus called papaya ring spot virus that was basically decimating the papaya or had decimated the papaya industry in, in Hawaii. And so um, a researcher, uh, his name is Dennis Gonzalez. He led an effort to uh, generate papaya plants that are resistant to papaya ring spot virus. Uh, and that that basically involves introducing a small piece of papaya ring spot virus back into papaya in a, in a way that it induces RNA silencing against papaya ring spot virus. So um, so those, you know, uh, he showed that in, by doing that, you can protect papaya from papaya ring spot virus. Hmm. And now it makes it possible again to grow papaya in, in places in Hawaii where um, the virus had basically wiped out a uh, whole, I guess, their orchards of papaya. Um, uh, but now now they can grow it there again. Hmm. That's pretty cool. That's, yeah, that's probably the most famous example. And then in, uh, in uh, uh, what is it, in squash, I think, uh, squash has, has some major virus diseases that limit its, its production. And so... Um, there's three viruses, watermelon mosaic virus, cucumber mosaic virus, and zucchini yellow mosaic virus that are very limiting to squash production. And, and they're found all over the, all over the world, hmm. uh, these viruses. And, and, and so there is, there is a very effective resistance against these three viruses that's based on RNAi technology um, that's used in, in squash. That's pretty, that's pretty fascinating. And that, that ties in with, you know, I, I did a search uh, as I was prepping for this, this podcast interview, you know, I, I knew there that we used w within crop production. I, I knew, I knew that we use this uh, form of technology in, in quite a few different ways, but I had no idea that it was this broad. So, so just to give the listeners of uh, a good feel for how, how much the RNA technologies, RNA interference technologies used I, I got I got a few examples here. So we we actually use this technology in onions to produce tearless onions. That that's one way mm. that I found. We use it in tomatoes to reduce ethylene sensitivity. So it impacts how how quick those tomatoes uh, ripen up. Uh, we we use this in heavy heavy metal accumulation and in, in Arabidopsis um, and enhanced nutrient content within tomatoes. Uh, Complete resistance to barley yellow dwarf virus. Uh, I, I found that pretty interesting. We have we have orally applied. Uh, RNA approaches for inducing uh, mortality of, you know, Western corn rootworm. You know, that, that's one of our new uh, traits that we have in corn. 
Um, mm-hmm. We actually, in, in 2017, there was the approval granted for Apple and Potato expressing double-stranded RNA for regulation of endogenous gene expression for quality enhancement. So it's it's pretty cool. As complicated as this process is, and I still feel like I have no understanding how it, wor- <laughs> how it works, it, it still fascinates me the, the amount of science that goes into how, how humans use this technology to make their food better, look better, or uh, in, increase yields because of an insect or disease. I, I just find that pretty fascinating. Yeah, and... It- I mean, I think it leads to kind of, and I and I doubt this is a question. I mean, it's probably almost a whole nother podcast, but so you identify a problem, right? Or you want to manage a, a, a virus. Where do you even start? I mean, so if you use the papaya example, so you, you clearly have a, a viral problem. Where, right. where do you start? I mean, it, it it sounds so simple, right? Well, we introduced some <laughs> we introduced some papaya ring spot. The Just problem like away, that. like, yeah, like, okay, cool. So... Where do you start? I mean, wh- what's the starting line for for that type of a of an answer to a management problem? Yeah, well, I think all right. I guess I would say you'd have to figure out if it was a problem that could be. I mean, okay, this is like a circular argument again. <laughs> I mean, is it is it a problem that that could be addressed with with RNA? Sure, uh, with RNA I right. So. So uh, for for a virus, I I think yeah that's that's possible that that makes a lot of sense. Um, but then when you start thinking about other other organisms, like well, could I use RNA RNAi against a, a you know a fungus, or could I use it against a a nematode, or could I use it against a, a an insect? So then you have to do a lot of homework to figure out. Okay, so if you did make this, you know. If you did set up a plant that had the RNA I system in it that could target a fungus, a nematode, or a or an insect, could the insect t- actually take that up? And then, if it was taken up, could it actually target the the gene that you intend to target in in the insect? So there's a lot of there's a lot of um, basic experiments that have to be done to figure out whether or not the RNA I approach is actually going to to work or be effective uh, or not. And then a lot of things work in the lab. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and then you, I hear this all the time. Yeah, this works in the lab, but it doesn't work in the field. Yep. So then like you can you can show that it works in a lab setting in the greenhouse or a growth chamber, but then moving it to the field is a whole nother uh, ball game. Um, so, um, but obviously you have to do the basic lab work first to get to the point where you could test test it in a kind of a field field setting, um, but yeah, I mean, there's a lot of problems. I think, and and Andrew read a whole list of things there uh, that we could apply RNAi to. Um, I think you can you can kind of use your imagination and then do the do the work you need to do to figure out, yeah, this could work or no, this isn't going to work. So, so I so I I let's use your imagination over the next decade. Uh, you know, and maybe, maybe think, maybe think row crop commodity. I mean, that's kind of our, our people. Where do you see this technology being used? Um, yeah, so I'm not sure, but I want to come back to CRISPR a little bit. Um, Absolutely. So a lot of the things that people have been thinking about using RNA I for 
you could also use, or instead, you could use CRISPR. Um, so, so I I think that you know there may there may still be some. Well, there will there there will always be probably ideas that you could have for for RNA I, especially if you can if you can produce some a molecule. Uh, you know, a double strand RNA or small RNAs in the plant that could target an insect that's a big problem or or a fungus. Um, but there also may be problems that we could solve by using the the CRISPR gene editing approach instead of the instead of the RNA I yeah. uh, approach. So I think we may see, you know, combinations of technologies or something like that could also be be possible. And then a lot of groups have been looking into and, and companies have been looking into the application of double strand RNAs onto plants uh, for um, for disease control or insect control. Uh, I don't know that any of those have gotten fully to to market yet, and and how aggressively they continue to pursue them. But um, you know, there is a lot of lot of evidence in that you know ectopic you know application of double strand RNAs to plants. Yeah. Can can work. So, whether someone can really turn the corner and and make that really efficient and effective, maybe you know maybe we'll see more of it uh, from a spare application point of view or something like that. I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna do it by next week. <laughs> <laughs> so, so my my next question as we wrap up this RNA interference conversation, I, I wanted now that we have a, a molecular a virologist on here, I, I wanted to ask you about the HR response because I, I think that's one of, one of the coolest things I learned about. I remember talking about the whole arms race and PAMP triggered immunity. You know, the, the effectors. And, and I ask this because I remember many years ago, you know, my parents have apple trees in their backyard. And I remember years ago, I would see all over their leaves, these perfect circular yellow lesions. And it would be, just be chlorotic lesions. And I had no clue what it was and, until I took your class. And I was just fascinated at the whole process. So can you, can you run us through what the HR response is and, 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 and why it's important for plants? Um, so HR is an acronym, stands for hypersensitive response. And uh, hypersensitive response is frequently associated with certain types of very effective resistance, genetic resistance against, uh, against pathogens. And uh, hypersensitive response basically occurs when the plant recognizes, specifically recognizes that the pathogen is there. And then uh, once that recognition occurs, the plant basically kills that part of itself that's interacting with the, the pathogen. So now the pathogen can't use the, those cells any longer to support its, its growth. And, and while, it's, um, while it's killing those cells, it's also making a bunch of nasty compounds that are, uh, that are toxic to microorganisms as well. So, um, so in, in essence, they're kind of... Uh, yeah, kind of poisoning the the waters, <laughs> yeah, yeah. if you will. Um, so, so you know, it's it's also kind of altruistic. So the plant is basically saying, "I'm going to sacrifice this. This group of cells are going to sacrifice themselves to to save the rest of the rest of the plant." Yeah. No, I, I think that's completely fascinating. Because, like I said, I had no clue what it was, and, and I know we have all these different apple trees that we can combine species on one tree, and and you know, obviously, we want genetic resistance, and so. 
Yeah, there's, I don't know what disease it is. It's on the tip of my tongue, but yeah, all these perfect yellow spots that we get them every year on this tree, but uh, it's it's always that plant uh, killing off those cells and managing that disease and stopping the spread. So I, th- I think that's pretty cool stuff. So my, my final question, uh, Steve, and, and I, I, I get a kick out of asking this, but it's, it's you kind <laughs> of alluded to the whole virus conversation. So from an expert's point of view, is a virus living? Well, um, is, is it an organism? You know, you kind of mentioned that earlier. You, you, you'll use the term organism. Is, is it living? Yeah. Is it an organism? Yeah. I, I don't That's know. a hard I one, isn't feeling. it? I have, I have mixed feelings about this, this question, obviously. Do, do, uh, do virologists have virologist meetings where they get in fights over <laughs> is a virus living or You're not? wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, you get in fight over names and stuff. So. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, it's. You know, where where is the fine line between what's a living organism and what's not living? It's very philosophical. Um, I would say, you know, I would say the viruses I study that might have encode four to ten genes, um, they're they're basically just selfish, selfish <laughs> genes that are trying to, you know, you give them the right environment, they're gonna replicate and then they're just gonna sit there. So so in in what essence they can direct their own replication and making new copies of themselves. Uh, but in another essence, if they don't have a host around, they're just they're just basically they're just dust laying on the you know, they're just dust laying there. You nothing. So, huh? I said they're nothing. Yeah, they're nothing. Basically they're, they're nothing. So but then there are things we call viruses, which are approaching the size of cells and the complexity of cells. Hmm. Um, and uh, those are they're obscure, kind of weird things. Uh, but it does it does make you wonder where is the line between what we consider to be a living thing, yeah, or not not living. Thing. Even even those complex ones, though, I would imagine they still need a, a living host, correct? Absolutely, yeah. So yeah. No virus can do, you know, the metabolism that it takes to to build amino acids and and to build nucleic acids. Um, no virus has that ability, and and all the you know the micronutrients and things that and cofactors that are needed for all that. Viruses can't do all that metabolism. So yeah, without that, they're they're uh, what'd you say? Dust. Yeah, <laughs> nothing. Um, Steve, this has been um, excellent. We appreciate you joining us. One of our uh, favorite ways to kind of kind of wrap our topic is is maybe to just give you an opportunity to talk about um, something in your career that's that's been really cool, whether that's a part of the conversation we've had today or just something you've um, you've studied and been a a part of. Um, thinking through your career, what what's been uh, what's been a highlight? All right. Well, uh, I think yeah. I mean, the most impactful other than thing teaching I did, me, other than teaching me oh, and, and having me as well, a student. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I had had Andrew Penny in my Plant Path Five Hundred Six class. That was pretty. <laughs> that was pretty fun. Uh, he was a great student. Uh, <laughs> he just winked. If any, you guys can't see this, but he just, yeah. he just winked yeah, and smiled. Yeah, Andrew was waving a hundred dollar yeah. bill around above his head. <laughs> Okay, so besides you mean besides teaching Andrew Penny? Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. What's the <laughs> second? What's the second coolest okay. thing you've done in your career? <laughs> uh, yeah, so uh, yeah, the, definitely by far the biggest thing I did was my graduate work. 
um, where at the time I was a grad student, we didn't know what resistance genes were. I mean, we right? We knew they existed. We for, knew that for they anything for viral vir viruses or anything. Anything really? Anything? Yeah. When I started graduate school, uh, resistance genes were only known as these genetic, these useful genetic things that we could use for like breeding resistance and huh. stuff like that. I didn't know that. Uh, and and we knew that um, like resistance genes cause recognition of the pathogen and and then the, like we were talking about with the hypersensitive response. So uh, uh, my graduate work in my graduate work I cloned uh, the first resistance gene to a, a virus uh, from tobacco. This is called uh, and the virus was called tobacco mosaic virus mm -hmm. and the gene is called the N gene, which stands for necrotic response to TMV. Um, so um, I cloned that gene. Uh, and simultaneously, uh, two other groups clone uh, genes for resistance to bacterial pathogens. And when we compared the sequences of the genes, we saw that they had a very similar structure to each other. Um, so, uh, uh, so, and actually, most resistance genes that have been discovered since then have very similar structures to the one that I cloned from tobacco mosaic virus resistance and what these other groups had cloned uh, for resistance to bacteria. So hmm. uh, it's really cool to kind of establish this kind of overarching theme about, you know, how the, the types of molecules that are uh, controlling uh, genetic resistance in, in plants to, uh, to pathogens. Yeah. Man, I continue to love that question. You know, we, we just interviewed, uh, every interview, that's my favorite question. I, I feel like I could talk to you for another half an hour just about that. Yeah. I, lo I love those answers. But my Here's a little, here's a little aside. Um, at this, about the same time we were doing our work in plants, there was a group doing work in uh, Drosophila animal cells, Drosophila fruit fly. They discovered similar molecules involved in immune responses in in animals and they won a nobel prize <laughs> <laughs> man you guys got left out again yeah. huh here you yeah. are doing oh, work for, with oh, research. For <laughs> and they and they cited and they cited my uh, my phd paper my main paper for my phd they cited it in their paper for which they won the nobel nobel prize did you get a portion of that million dollar prize they got nope nothing nope. Man, so we went from petunias zero for one. Now we're zero for two. Yeah. Actually, probably even earlier than that. Yeah, we're zero for two. Yeah, Oof so we like to joke about it. But Give plant scientists yeah, we're not, some we're love. Not right? <laughs> but we're not bitter. Yeah, we're not bitter. We're not bitter though. Uh, Andrew Penny is my uh, co-host and agronomist. At the end of our show, I like to cash in my penny. I'm fascinated by this one because he's supposed to explain. Oh boy, three, I, don't, uh, I do not have a good feeling about this one. Three key takeaways, and uh, considering <laughs> um, considering that uh, considering that your uh, previous professor gets to judge this, I, I would like uh, to ask Dr. Whittem to give Andrew a grade at the end of cashing in my penny today. So, Andrew. Cash in my penny. Oofta. Boy, if, if there's any summary uh, of any podcast we've done, I feel like this one's going to be the hardest because it's uh, most of this stuff went over my head pretty pretty uh, easily. But uh, I, I think my main takeaway is, you know, if, if we're thinking about plant viruses and, and how to control them, I, th I think one of the most important things to remember is that viruses need a living host, right? 
with that, they need a vector. And so I'm, I'm glad that you touched on, and, and obviously this is probably going to depending depend on the, the insect and also the virus, but sometimes managing the insect doesn't always control or, or manage the disease. There are times where we, that, you know, that just doesn't matter. Uh, second, I, I think I found it interesting. I think just with this whole RNA conversation, you know, I, I think it's, it's important to remember the, the central dogma theory, right? Genes, uh, these genes encode, uh, we have messenger, messenger RNA that, that carries the, the gene uh, information out of the cell. And, that, and then we have RNA and those RNA code for proteins, right? And so when, when we talk RNA interference, um, it's, it's essentially we're, we're silencing that gene, right? So we're stopped, we're, yep. that, that process is, is taking the, what, what would be a protein expression from those genes and, and we're essentially silencing that. And so at the end of the day, when we, when we talk about an overly complicated process with RNA interference, just think about it, think about it as, uh, putting an X between genes, you know, DNA to RNA and RNA to proteins. We're essentially putting an X in between those RNA and protein expression. Would that be a good way to put it, Dr. Whittem? That sounds great. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> hey, all right. Is that three or is there one more? Oh, that, there's got to be there's got to be at least one more. I, right? I, I was too, I was actually too good on the first two. So <laughs> I was just gonna say I felt pretty good, and uh, so uh, <laughs> I think the the other one that actually kind of stood out to me is you know we, for a lot of this technology, in, including this new rootworm technology that's available, it's it's this whole process of um, RNA interference. It's it's the double stranded RNA that is sensed, right? So and and yeah. I found I found it interesting in my notes. So if we're thinking about how a plant uh, de detects a virus, it's that replication process that a virus has in trying to replicate, in replicate itself where it produces that double-stranded RNA, and that's mm -hmm. what the plant senses. And, and that, that, that really uh, hit home because a lot of the technology that we use that you see, you know, if, if you're controlling insects, um, it's, it's often that double-stranded RNA that's delivered to the insect in which that insect's host machinery senses that and, and shuts down certain vital processes within that insect, and, and that's what ends the, the insect's life. So it's it's that double-stranded RNA is what kind of triggers the the whole RNA interference response. Yep. Aced it. Get, let's uh, let's I, let's give him a uh, let's give him a, uh, a grade here. <laughs> yeah. What can I say? I mean, it's got to be an A, right? Oh man, <laughs> I feel good because uh, yeah. legit the whole time I was like, man, this is going to be the hardest summary I've ever done, and I feel like I I don't know if you look at my notes, I was so overwhelmed with information, my <laughs> notes don't do any justice of what I absorbed, and so I was pretty nervous going into my uh, cashing in the penny uh, summary. Well, <laughs> Doctor Doctor Whittem, I really appreciate it. Um, this is a this is a a difficult um topic and and I think it's going to be something that's going to be really good for our listeners and I can already tell it's going to be one that probably listening a few times is going to help people kind of digest information in bits but appreciate your expertise and you taking the time to join us um Andrew would you uh give our give our listeners a teaser about who we're going to uh um get to hear from next yeah so uh I'm excited uh we uh we are finally going to uh, have an expert on to talk about soil science. So we're going to dig deep into uh, understanding and interpreting uh, soil test results, uh, managing fertility. And uh, the, the teaser is our expert is from Kansas State. Yeah, look forward to it. Dr. Whittem, thank you. Uh, thanks for all the work that you've done and taking time to join us today. And uh, look forward to uh, feedback from our listeners. All right. You're welcome, guys. It was fun.
Thank you for joining us on another episode of A Penny for Your Thoughts. We love your feedback. Please email us at apennyforyourthoughts at gmail.com. That's a penny, the number four, your thoughts at gmail.com. Or reach out to Andrew and I on our social media. Thank you for tuning in.